0: Welcome to Head, Heart, and Hands, the teaching fellowship of Bob Carter, pastor of River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Bible teaches that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We want to help you do just that. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to our heads. God wants us to think, and to think correctly. Second. The gospel is also a call to our hearts. We are to love God and to love what God loves. And the gospel is a call to our hands, to action, real change and transformation. Now let's join our teacher, Bob Carter, for today's challenging message.
1: Martin Lloyd-Jones on your bulletin wrote, listen for your life. Here is the only message of hope for you. And there's never a better time to take our spiritual pulse than before the preaching to see, do we believe that to be the case?
2: That God himself may come and fix something in us that desperately needs fixing.
1: The sermon this morning is entitled, A Broken and Contrite Heart.
2: We're going to be looking at 2 Samuel 12. This is the arrival of the prophet Nathan sent by God to King David.
1: But the background was last week as we looked at the grievous sin that takes place with the Bathsheba incident. And we need to review quickly the background to that. What is the background? The background is King David is a shepherd. And the God of the universe sends his prophet Samuel to his father's house. And he has seven other sons, the father does. And they think one of them might be it. But God says to Samuel each time, no. And Samuel's under the impression this is all the sons there are. He says, do you have any others? And Jesse says, well, actually, I do have one left out there in the field. And God calls him in and anoints him right there. That's the background. David comes from being a shepherd, being overlooked virtually, being no one, if you will, to being king over Israel. And then that David goes out against Goliath as he goes to the army one day, only delivering cheese to his older brothers. And Goliath comes out and taunts the army of the living God. And Goliath, uh, David looks around and says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God. And he goes to King Saul and says, Can I go against him? And King Saul says to him something very smart.
2: He says, You're only a youth. And he has been a warrior from his youth. You don't know what you're doing. And King David says, Well, I'm not trusting in myself. I'm trusting God. And he gives him the example that God once gave a lion into his hand once gave a bear into his hand. Then he says to King Saul, the same God who delivered the lion and the bear into my hand will deliver Goliath into my hand. And so he takes him out. We know that story. And then
1: the people come in one day, delighted in King David as he continues to have victories by the power and mercy and glory of God. And King Saul hears the women singing Saul has slain his thousands, but David, his ten thousands. And Saul, in pride and covetousness, rages against David. And for the rest of his life, tries to take him out and kill him. But is unsuccessful because of the glory of God. In fact, on one occasion, King David is in a cave with King Saul. And in order to demonstrate that God had put him into his hands, he reaches over, although his men are telling him, apparently whispering to him, Take him out, kill him right here. He says, oh no. And he cuts off the corner of King Saul's robe. And King Saul goes out of the cave and he comes out behind him and says,
2: check the corner of your robe. But he repents, King David does, over even having done that much. His conscience is
1: smitten that he has stretched out his hand against the Lord even by cutting off the corner of his robe. And then he becomes king after Saul dies. And then the kingdom is expanded and he gets wife after wife after wife after wife. Seven of them are named. He has seven wives and concubines, it says.
2: And then all in one night, this same man goes walking on his roof one night, sees a married lady next door,
1: within minutes is committing adultery with her, And then within weeks he finds out that she's pregnant and he's plotting to lie. And he calls Uriah home from the battlefield so that Uriah will think that it's his child. And then when Uriah is so noble-minded that he wouldn't even think about going home while the Lord's armies are in the field, David plots to kill noble-minded Uriah and sends the letter of execution by noble-minded Uriah's own hand. Joab carries it out. Several other men die with Uriah, so that it won't be so
2: obvious. And then, David thinks it's all behind him. Brothers and sisters, God is not mocked Do not be deceived. Whatever a man
1: sows, that will he also reap. And the Bible tells us this again and again and again, because we fail to believe it. Will you stand to honor the reading of God's word in Second Samuel chapter 12?
2: Chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him. And he said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. They would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler
1: came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own hurt to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, having taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes, and give them to your companion. And he will lie with your wives, in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun.
2: Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David,
1: The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die.
2: However, because
1: by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David, so that he was
2: very sick. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would indeed help us. Lord, many of us in this room
1: recognize that your living, active word together with your Holy Spirit is our only hope. Our hope that we might understand you better, and know you better, and love you more, that we might see our sin and its heinousness and recoil from it, that we might stay closer to the shepherd, that we might be on the lookout like watchful for one another, that we might be mindful of our adversary, the devil, prowling about like a roaring lion,
2: seeking whom he may devour. God, we are far too comfortable with our sin and mediocrity. And we take as an excuse the great apostasy all about us. And yet you tell us that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come now and write your law on our hearts. That you would come and write your gospel on our hearts. And Holy Spirit, That you would live big in us, restoring in us your very image. That by our lives and by our lips we might proclaim your gospel. And by our repentance and by our love of mercy, we might demonstrate your mercy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the questions we had last week as we looked at the passage about the Bathsheba incident
1: is keeping in mind that this is King David and all the things I just said about King David. I could say some nice things about some of you in this room, but they wouldn't match King David.
2: The God of the universe calls him a man after my own heart. And the question for us is, what hope do you have if this is what happens to King David? And the answer is the hope in God, the hope in the gospel
1: of Christ, and a hope in his steadfast love that endures forever. You often hear me pray from Hebrews that the blood of Christ continues to cry out more effectively than the blood of Abel.
2: You remember when Cain killed Abel. God comes to Cain and says, your brother's blood is crying out to me. And the writer to the Hebrews says, The blood of Christ continues to cry out more effectively than the blood of Abel. That sounds like Shakespeare. Until you see the blackness of your soul and the weakness of your flesh and the ravaging of the evil one and you rightly apply reason and say, if this happened to David, what's going to happen to me? But we learn to
1: see the beauty of it, What it means that God's steadfast love
2: endures forever. The prayer that we saw this morning in the bulletin there on the third page, it says, as Steve pointed out, No poor creature stands in need of divine grace more than I do, and yet
1: none abuses it more than I have done and still do. How heartless and dull I am. Teach me and help me to love you more. I persist in abandoning the pilgrim's path that you have wisely laid before me. You remember that when two men, hopeful and Christian, go over the path, they get off the pilgrim's path, Because they think it's a shortcut, and they end up in Doubting Castle with a giant of despair. And then after a while, they remember the promises of God, and they escape. But when they get back onto the road, one of them turns to the other one and says, this could happen to somebody else. We should make a sign. And they do. And they go back to where they got off the road, and they say, it looks like this would be a good place to take a shortcut, but don't you'll end up in Doubting Castle with a giant of despair. We know. We ourselves need to learn from the many examples that God gives us in Scripture, and then learn. I persist in abandoning the pilgrim's path that you have wisely laid before me, and if I ever get to heaven,
2: it will be because you have willed it so. Oh, bless your holy name. This portion of this prayer seems like Shakespeare to a lot of people because they don't know how sinful they are. Psalm 130 says, O Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who would stand? But David, after this experience, has a far greater understanding of how needful he is of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the great grace in grace.
1: We ourselves must come to understand this, not just by David's example, that's a great learning lesson, like training wheels for ourselves, but then to take this passage and then begin to see in our own lives and see our great need of our great Savior, and that if we ever get to heaven, it will be because of Christ and
2: because of God's faithfulness and because of his blood that continues to cry out more effectively than the blood of Abel. We have a phrase for this. It's called Perseverance of the Saints. From Philippians chapter 1,
1: He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That is a promise from God that you can stand upon if you are born again. And so Paul wisely says to the church at Corinth, examine yourselves and see whether you be in the faith. But if you have reasonable reason to believe you are in the faith, then you may stand upon the precious promise of God that no matter how faithless we are, he will be faithful. And you can bow low and praise his holy name. And with the opportunity to sing his praises,
2: no one will have to tell you to sing loudly. Perseverance of the Saints is about the mercy of God. It's about the covenant keeping of God.
1: It's about the weakness of men. And it's about the glory of God. The Westminster Confession defines it this way. In chapter 17, they whom God has accepted in his beloved, in Christ, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere to the end and be eternally saved. What hope do you have? None in yourself but altogether in Christ and in his steadfast love that endures forever. And that's why God says to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55, as far as the heavens are above the earth,
2: so far are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. Because you would give up. You would give up on someone who sinned against you and trampled underneath
1: your love and your attentiveness, and your blessings, the way God has rained down
2: blessings upon us, you would give up on such a person. But God does not. And we can hardly comprehend it. And God says, you're right that you can hardly comprehend it, because we're hardly the same. But I will do it. I will do it. And my glory will shine forth. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 18, please. Matthew 18, a lesson that David is learning. Brothers and sisters, this is written across the heart of every true believer. Verse
1: 21,
2: Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother
1: sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times, David might have said,
2: yeah, seven times
1: before the incident. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So, when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their lord all that had happened. Then, summoning him, his lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his lord. Moved with anger, listened to this carefully,
2: handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed. My heavenly Father, says the
1: Lord Christ, will also do the same to you
2: if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart.
1: Sometimes, instead of memorizing the entire verses, I memorize a portion of the verse. I would encourage you to memorize Matthew eighteen thirty-five from your heart. Every one of you here has had somebody apologize to you in which they said, oh, I see it bothered you.
2: And I apologize. But they were not broken over their sin. Heart, God can read, whether
1: it's repentance or forgiveness. God can read our hearts, and only God can give our hearts repentance and forgiveness. And here the Lord Christ says it must be from your heart. Let's go back to our text in 2 Samuel 12. In 2 Samuel 12, in the first verse, Then the Lord sent to Nathan, to David, Set Nathan to David. What a uh, mercy this is. What a mercy this is that God has sent him, but not just a mercy to David, but it is a righteous act. Proverbs 31 has an interesting passage that most of you are not familiar with. And I say that because when we think of Proverbs 31, we think of the Proverbs 31 woman, which is appropriate. However, that begins in verse 10. In Proverbs 31, it says this, Open your mouth for the mute for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. Nathan is there for two reasons, because
2: Uriah is dead. And he is there to deliver a message on behalf of God regarding that. Uriah can't speak for himself, and Nathan has come to say,
1: This is a great and grievous sin that you have committed. Great and grievous sin that you have committed. Part of our responsibility as ambassadors for Christ is to speak up when we see somebody else falsely accused or wounded or adulterous or murdered. There is great mercy here in the passage, though, of God in sending Nathan. There is great mercy. David sends sends and God sends Nathan. You recall that at Jericho, Akan sins by taking some of the gold and some of the silver, and he hides it, and God does not send a prophet. But he judges Israel, and they go out to battle at the next city, which is called Ai, and 36 men die in the battle. And Joshua immediately recognizes, we've done, something's wrong. We shouldn't be losing men in this battle. And he goes to God, he says, what happened? And God says to him, there's sin in the camp. 36 men died before they realized what had happened. But in this case, God comes right to him and tells him what is taking place here. There's great mercy in God coming and granting this. God is merciful with the truth. Christ says to the woman at the well, you worship what you do not know. He speaks the truth in love. And Paul to Peter, when Peter gets off course, Paul
2: challenges him and corrects him. The reality is that there is a great blessing here as well as we
1: contemplate David wallowing in his sin for a period of time. We do know that it appears that the baby is born or is about to be born. looks like it's maybe already born, possibly. In this passage, David apparently goes for about nine months or more in this sin before he is mercifully confronted by God through the prophet Nathan. Sometimes God will let us linger, but it will not be a good time. Listen to what Matthew Henry says. It's in your bulletin under the title of the sermon today. This is what Matthew Henry says about this. Why should we think of David's state all this while? Can we imagine that his heart never smote him for it? Or that he never lamented it in secret before God? A child of God would be lamenting it would willingly hope that he did and that Nathan was sent to him immediately upon the birth of the child when the thing by what means came to be publicly known and talked of to draw from him an open confession of the sin to the glory of God, the admonition of others, and that he might receive by Nathan absolution with certain limitations. But during these nine months, we may well suppose his comforts and the exercises of his graces suspended. And his communion with God interrupted. During all that time it is certain he penned
2: no psalms. His harp was out of tune. His harp was out of tune. This is what Robert Robertson wrote the hymn, Come thou Fount of every blessing. It says Tune
1: my heart to sing thy grace. Tune my heart. His heart was out of tune and his soul like a tree in winter that has life in the root only. Therefore, after Nathan had been with him, he prays, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. So it is a blessing that God has sent Nathan to him. You know, it's interesting. Charles Spurgeon said this about the deathbed conversion of the thief on the cross. You remember the thief on the cross is converted. He starts out railing against the Lord Christ. Saying, "If you are the Son of God, come down, save yourself, save us." And then God regenerates his heart while he's on the cross, and he says, "Remember me when you come into your kingdom." Charles Spurgeon says, "It's the only deathbed conversion recorded in Scripture. That there is one
2: that no one should despair, but only one that none should presume." This grievous experience you with.
1: David and the adultery and the murder is not common in Scripture for the saints of God of such a heinousness and of walking for such a long time. But it is here to help us understand that whatever is going on in our life, whatever we have done or, ha- or are doing or may by our sin in the future do, that the mercy of God is greater still. That the mercy of God is greater still. And so here is one of the best examples God could give a man after God's own heart in this great and grievous sin, and yet the mercy of God being applied in this situation. He tells the story in verses 1 through 3. There were two men in the city, one rich, one poor. We just read it. One only has a single tiny lamb that he bought. He has his lawfully, and the other man is very rich. And we see a very identic situation. This man uh, is a family man, apparently. He has children, but he loves this little sheep and treats it uh, the way that a lot of modern people might treat a favorite dog or something. It's it's a very identic situation. It's beautiful. It's pastoral. It's lovely. And then sin comes in. Verse 4, Now a traveler came to the rich man. Who is the traveler? Well, if we were reading Pilgrim's Progress, it would be Mr. Covetousness. It would be Mr. Covetousness. It's the Tenth Commandment. It's lust that can never be satisfied, always wanting something more than what you have. Here's a man, rich, 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 and not willing to take of anything he's got, and taking something that doesn't belong to him. He's coveting. Just like the serpent in the garden, Mr. Covetous, has come into this situation, and the man falls prey to it, uh, very quickly, and does the wrong thing here, we ourselves must be very mindful of coveting and the foolishness of that, coveting what other people have. And he says, Traveler came, the rich man, he was unwilling to take from his own flock, but rather he took the poor man's ewe lamb. And so, of course, David's anger is burned. And we see here, what's going on here, Nathan is describing this as the murder, this adultery is the murder of a marriage. And the murder of a man. The murder of a marriage. And the murder of a man. In verse 5 and 6. And David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan. As the Lord lives. Surely the man has done this. Deserves to die. He understands that there is great grief here. Now keep in mind. In this story. It's a lamb. And if you're thinking pretty rationally here. A death sentence for this is probably harsh. Probably not what we would think of from other examples in Scripture, kind of the eye for the eye, the tooth for the tooth kind of thing. This this is a harsh sentence. Why is it harsh? Because David, not realizing his own desperate need of mercy, is full of self-righteous pride, and harsh sentences come from people full of self-righteous pride. But mercy flows from those who understand their own great need of a Savior and their own weakness. They're understanding that there, but for the grace of God, go I. And this harsh sentence comes forth. It seems unlikely that after this event, that he would be so harsh in quickly giving sentences. Micah 6, eight says, He has shown you, O man, and what does the Lord require
2: of you, but to do what's right, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. In verse 7, Oh, in verse 6, I'm sorry, he must
1: make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. So there's a little more of a sense of maybe a justice here that it isn't just that he stole the lamb because he was hungry, and so therefore he's got to restore the lamb. But here, there's extenuating circumstances, aggravating circumstances, we might say, that maybe the four for one is probably more appropriate here, something more just in verse 6. And then, of course, Nathan says, You are the man. And the question here is the reality, what would Nathan say about each of us this morning? What would Nathan say about each of us in regard to our relationship with God currently and our sin? And then he goes on and gives some wonderful retelling. And we need this. This is the beauty of the New Testament. It's the beauty of the Psalms. It's the beauty of the Bible that we read again and again and again the mercy and the blessings of God upon the people of God. One of the most significant things for me every time I hear it is to think that there is no plan of redemption for fallen angels. And you see the perfect justice of God. He does not owe them anything. There is no plan of redemption for fallen angels. And then when you begin to understand redemption, and the rare jewel of salvation that God has made it possible. And then God Himself applies it. And we see all of the riches in that. And then behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Matthew Henry says, Ingratitude is the spring and malignity of sin. Listen to that again. Ingratitude is the spring and malignity of sin. And so we want to preach to ourselves the riches that we have in Christ, the great blessing that we have in Christ. Things like Ephesians 2 and similar passages or Psalm 103 as we looked at it this morning. And he is very direct with him in verse 7. You are the man, simply very simple and straightforward. And he follows it up with thus says the Lord and tells him immediately what is going to happen and reminds him of his high exalted position of favor And begins to speak, not as himself, not Nathan as a a fellow believer, but Nathan as the prophet of God, telling him what is happening here and what a blessing that is in a very real way as Nathan delivers this message. There is, in this passage, though, he is describing that there has been a contempt for the Almighty. Nathan is saying, you have trampled underfoot these blessings. You have trampled underfoot these blessings, verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? We ourselves recognize that. You realize some of you know the word contempt of court. Contempt of court is one of the highest powers that a judge has. Because the judge can put you in jail at any time if you are in his courtroom. If you're actually in court and court is convened, he has the power to put you in jail if you are a defendant or a plaintiff. He has the power to put you in jail if you're an attorney for the, for the defense or for the plaintiff. He has the power to put you in jail if you're a witness on the witness stand. He has the power to put you in jail if you are in
2: the audience after the bailiff has convened court. It's a broad, sweeping power. What does he do it for? What does contempt of court mean? It means disrespecting where you are
1: and who you're addressing. That's what contempt of court is. It's disrespecting where you are and who you're addressing. And Nathan is coming to him and saying, as he says, as God through the Holy Spirit says to all of us, that that's what sin is, of disrespecting who we are talking to and where we are and where we've come from as children of God. We need to reflect on that and be mindful of the words of Richard Baxter. Take heed to yourselves. Every word you speak, every step you tread, for you bear the ark of the Lord and you must bring him honor. But he also goes on to say in verse 9 that some sins are worse than others. He even says that, verse 9, he says that you have killed Uriah by the sword of the sons of Ammon. You've caused him to die by the hands of these dreadful pagans. And that's even worse. And he's just, he's just a, It's insult upon insult of how you've done this and, and clarifies that. It is a horrible thing when David is confronted with all of this back-to-back-to-back quickly. Verses 10 and 11 are describing another fall of man. That's what's taking place. That's why in this story, as he comes in, it's an Edenic setting here of how lovely everything is with the man and his little lamb. But then the traveler comes, Mr. Covetousness comes in, like Satan entering in the garden. And things begin to go south very quickly. They begin to spiral down very, very quickly. And it's another fall of man. Verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. I'm going to let you see the consequences of sin that you might delight all the more that I'm going to take care of your sin. I'm going to let you see where sin goes. And sin always just tumbles and gets bigger and bigger and worse and worse in its consequences. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. And he makes it, it just, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And then in verse 14, he says more of the same. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child is going to die. And so the consequences are enormously grave. What's happening here? is he's reaping what he's sowing. He's reaping later, in this case nine months, and he's reaping more than he sowed. And that's what happens to us again and again. Turn, Keep your finger there for just a second and turn back to Luke 17. Look at Luke 17. As we contemplate this experience of David and we vicariously by reading this and studying this, Luke 17, verse 3, the Lord Christ says, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. David is learning a great lesson in his own great need of repentance and how that will affect him in regard to others. It is in Luke 18. You can read it later. We've said it many times. Luke 18 is the tax collector and the Pharisee. The Pharisee thinks he's doing all right. And prior to this incident, it's very likely that David thought he was doing all right. But the tax collector is standing off at a distance, unwilling to lift up his eyes toward heaven, but beating his breast, crying out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And we see the beauty of an understanding of our position, where we are and who we're addressing. What is effectual calling? Perseverance of the saints is what happens here with David. God brings him through this. God marvelously brings him through this. And as we, Lord willing, will be able to take this up next Sunday morning, we'll see the rest of this in chapter 12. God marvelously brings him through this. Effectual calling is a work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. Convincing us of our sin and misery, David is convinced now of his sin and of his misery and of the weakness of
2: the flesh and of the necessity of staying close to the Savior. We ourselves must become convinced.
1: There is a deep, deep crippling That's necessary for us. We must understand our situation. When you think of Peter's denial in Matthew 26, it says that after he denied Christ the third time, that he went out and wept
2: bitterly. The denial of Peter is in all four of the Gospels. There are not that many things that are in all four of the Gospels.
1: The denial of Peter of Christ is in all four. But Peter, like David, might have thought, that wouldn't happen to me. As he says boldly, that wouldn't happen to me. But after it happens, he's going to be a different creature. He's going to be staying close to the shepherd. He's going to be a lover of mercy. And when people sin against him and come back to him from their heart and ask for forgiveness, he's going to say, Brother, in light of all the sin, my Heavenly Father has forgiven me. It's my duty. It's my privilege
2: to forgive you.
1: And so it is that David is learning this lesson and we ourselves must learn it. God himself, listen to this, God himself will take you by the hand from time to time in your life and take you to the
2: edge of depravity that you might see the depths of the blackness of your soul and then pull you back. Grace is a marvelous thing. Psalm 103, we
1: Read it in the prayers today. I urge you to read it this week. I urge you to take this bulletin this week and spend some time with it as you reflect upon even the songs that are there. It is a remarkable thing. Verse 15. So Nathan went to his house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David. Not David's wife, Uriah's widow is what it says. What God says comes to pass. What God says comes to pass. And we want to reflect upon that in every conceivable way. Let me close with directing your attention to the back of the bulletin. The back of the bulletin is Psalm 51. I just printed it out here. Obviously, it's in your own Bible. I printed it out here. Lord willing, we'll look at this a little more next week as we continue in chapter 12. But as you take this bulletin and spend some time with it this week in your personal devotions reflecting upon this portion of chapter 12, you can read through this. I want to draw your attention to one line and one line only. It's verse 10. Verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. The word create there is the word from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's not used very often in the Bible at all. It's pretty rare. But David reaches all the way back to Genesis 1 and says, I don't need a repair job. I need a whole
2: new heart. I need a whole new heart. Will you pray with me, please?
1: Heavenly Father, we pray that you would indeed write these glorious eternal truths on our hearts. That we might see the weakness of men in general and of ourselves in particular. That we might see the deception and illusory lies of sin in all of its attractiveness and the grave consequences multiplying
2: and twisting back and forth across our future path. That we might see the greatness of your grace And the wonder that your steadfast love endures forever. God bless us as we understand our own great need. That from our hearts we might be fountains of mercy. Lovers of mercy. Good shepherd, keep us close. We pray God that you would help us. In Jesus name. Amen. Receive now the blessing of God for the people of God. The
1: Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now and forever. Amen.
0: You've been listening to Head, Heart, and Hands with Bob Carter. This Bible teaching has been sponsored by River City Reform Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our website is rivercityreform.org. River City Reform Church meets on Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Temple Baptist Activity Center, located on the corner of 17th Street Extension and George Anderson Drive. Please visit RiverCityReform.org for more information or call us at 910-520-0272. That's 910-520-0272. At River City Reform Church, we are all about loving God with our heads, hearts, and hands. We desire to know the one true God correctly. We long to love God, our Creator and Savior, passionately. We seek to worship and serve God willingly through the power of His Spirit. God wants us, and you, to ask good questions. He wants us to build our faith on credible evidence, not just a blind leap. Biblical Christianity is true. He also requires and strengthens us to conform our values and behavior to reflect His goodness and holiness. We're thinking, loving, serving. Come and see. John Piper has observed, worship is not the performance of a routine of hymns and prayers and preaching and anthems. When the angel said to John who had fallen at his feet, don't do that to me, worship God, he did not mean recite a creed or open your hymnal or listen to a sermon. He meant connect with God, focus on God, not the messenger, concentrate on God, not the hymn tune. Pursue God, not just knowledge about God. And in all your focusing and concentrating and pursuing after God, seek to stir up your feelings to love Him and honor Him and admire Him and fear Him and enjoy Him and savor Him. At River City, we agree, and we are not limited by a particular style. Rather, we are compelled by a timeless thanksgiving, repentance, joy, and reverence. Our Sunday morning worship is in Wilmington, North Carolina. Please visit RiverCityReform.org for more information. On Sunday evenings, we meet for Bible study led by our pastor, Bob Carter. This study meets at 5 p.m. All are invited. Come and see...